Welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all of our listeners and now some viewers, welcome. Thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness in the context of conversations around race and racism, and as the structure pertains to different areas of our lives. Well, why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest who offers unique insights into these questions and many more. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest, a returnee, in fact, whom those of you who've been with us from the start, shout out to you, uh, will recognize. Her book, White Fragility, uh, kicked off some of the most heated debates on how we think and talk about race and racism that I've seen in recent years. And she's now back with a new book already causing a stir entitled Nice Racism. She's an anti-racism scholar and educator and New York Times bestselling author. Welcome, Dr. Robin D'Angelo. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So how have the last few years been since the release of White Fragility? Because a lot's been happening. Uh, they've been intense. <laughs> um, talking about racism is typically intense and charged and difficult. I've been doing it for about 25 years, so uh, I expect that it will be. And yet it seemed to be uh, kicked up a few notches. And I think for a few reasons, uh, we had uh, an explosion of um, the Black Lives Matter movement around several really significant clear events that happened in the U.S. The, the I would say, execution of George Floyd, uh, Breonna Taylor's shooting, uh, Ahmaud Arbery, and so on. Uh, and that ignited the movement worldwide, so it went global. And as Carol Anderson so powerfully argues in White Rage, every inch of black progress is met with white rage. And so while the forces that would challenge systemic racism were invigorated, so were the forces uh, that would protect racism. And so we, we've seen um, incredibly quick uh, restrictions on voting rights in the US. We see states who have literally banned the teaching of the history of race in this country. Um, and then of course you've, you know, I've been, you know, thoroughly attacked. Uh, again, I expect that. And because I am now so much more visible than I was during all that time that I've been doing this work, then I'm, I'm a great target for a lot of um, angst, um, a lot of projection, um, a lot of anger. <laughs> uh, so it's been quite the year. And then you add social media uh, yeah. and the ability to be anonymous uh, in your critique. And um, let's just say we've had to put some filters on my email. <laughs> yeah, quite the toxic mix. And in fact, you cite, I think, one of the one of the more interesting emails that you've received in the book um, mm. from someone who's got a rather strange email address, something along 
yeah, I'm not, I'm not even going to say it because it, it probably wouldn't be PG, but yes. Right. Um, so, and of course, a lot of those debates have been exported to Europe, or at least um, a lot of that rage, uh, the white rage that you're talking about, you know, the debates over critical race theory, for example, have been very present here uh, in the UK where I'm speaking from, but also in France, my native country. So um, a lot of that um, rage uh, kind of has definitely found its way across the Atlantic. Um, I, I read a summary of white fragility, which described it as, I quote, we all suck at taking criticism, but we especially suck at taking criticism when it comes to race. Is that a fair summary, would you say, of the book? Uh, well, I mean, it would be a fair summary, perhaps at responses to the book, right? So um, I was once going to give a talk for company, a book talk, and you know there was outrage and questions about whether we were gonna have the talk at all. And somebody put it like this, white fragility shuts down conversation on white fragility. <laughs> uh, so in the sense that the book is giving feedback to, to my fellow white people, um, and, and let me just say, I, I try to consistently point the finger inward as well as outward. I'm not outside of any of the racist dynamics that I'm talking about. Uh, but that, that clear articulation, that naming, uh, that giving, giving white culture uh, feedback, definitely, um, we, we could say some people have sucked at receiving it. <laughs> um, and, and what about how have you dealt with the feedback? So White Fragility was, of course, a New York Times bestseller. It was widely praised, but it also received a fair share of criticism. Um, which of those critiques, if any, did you feel were legitimate? Yeah. And of course, it would receive, you know, a wide range. Again, we're talking about racism and it was really effective. Uh, it really, um, I think, opened up the conversation or helped to. I'm not the only person who was writing, who is writing at this time, but it definitely helped to open up the conversation. And so the, the wider that goes, the more you're going to garner a whole range of reactions. I expect criticism from the right. And I, I that doesn't phase me at all. Uh, some of the criticism from the left was difficult and um, unexpected. Um, one thing I have definitely learned, well, I wouldn't say learned, I always knew it, but wow, did that, that lesson get reinforced, which is that you cannot possibly get this issue right by everybody. Mm -hmm. Even those who are also like you invested in challenging racism, you're not going to get it right by them either. So how I cope, one, oh, sorry, I better turn that buzzer off. Um, I am not on social media. I, you know, I don't know that I could get up in the morning and do what I do if I was reading and taking in and, you know, being the recipient of all of that feedback. It's immobilizing mm, because you yeah. have some people saying, you know, pass the mic, you should not be speaking and other people, you must be speaking. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So that's one way I coped. I just got off social media, try to limit the avenues by which people can be rather nasty towards me. And um, just being very clear within yourself, remembering that actually the vast majority of feedback that I get is positive and affirming and supportive. I, I have a folder with thousands of emails from people all over the world from, you know, across racial identities uh, that have affirmed my work. They're not the loudest voices. 
so I, I just remember that and I call upon that. So I remember very much uh, from the first book, at least, and you, I think you make that point as well in the, the second book, the most recent one, that when people of color are telling you something, and, and I'm going to caveat that term, we've caveated it before in the program, you know, obviously, it's an imperfect uh, use of terminology. Uh, but what, for, for the sake of brevity, we're going to use it here. So when people of color are telling you something on the subject of race, that we quote, unquote, white people should listen. How does that work when what they're saying is this approach is flawed or patronizing or unhelpful. And I'm thinking, of course, and I'm sure you have read these critiques by, you know, Thomas Chatterton Williams and Carlos Lozoda at the Washington Post. And I was reading one by John McCorter at the Atlantic who described white fragility as a racist tract. I mean, very strong words. How do you know, which voices do you know to listen to and those to discard or do you take how do you how do you deal with that range of voices particularly when it's coming from the same people I guess you would be looking to make an argument alongside in theory I'm not sure I would be making an um, argument alongside some of those folks that you named um, so I, I ask myself a few questions and I would ha have white people ask themselves a few questions. All right, I'm getting this conflicting feedback, right? Um, there are black people who say, absolutely read Robin DiAngelo's book. Jonathan Capehart at the Washington Post literally said, read this book. And there are black voices who say, don't read this book. Yeah. So look at the, what is the racial record uh, of this person who's writing this? I mean, think a little more critically, check out that person. Um, do they have a record of taking a stand on racial justice? Do they acknowledge the existence of systemic racism? In the McWhorter piece, I, I'm actually surprised it was published. I don't think it would be very difficult to think critically about that article. At that moment, at the height of the summer, um, of the explosion of Black Lives Matter movement and what happened with George Floyd, here's a black man saying, I have rarely ever experienced racism. Do you think that represents what most black people would say? In fact, it's been an advantage to be black. Uh, I don't think most black people would say that, um, but that is a message that will be embraced uh, by many white people who want to have some kind of reason to reject it. So who's this person? Where are they coming from? You know, what's, what's their history? I would also guide white people to ask, how does who I listen to or choose to listen to function? So I'm always asked about the McWhorters of the world, but Michael Eric Dyson, Ibram X. Kende, uh, Beverly Tatum, um, I, could, I could name more. I have to turn around and look at my books and remember every name. Um, I have all absolutely supported and upheld my work. So interesting, why would you reject what they are saying? Look at their, look at their histories in terms of their lifelong commitments to anti-racism. Um, how does it serve you to go with those who don't have that history and, and say, no, you don't have to think about what Robin is saying. I think for a lot of white people, it functions to excuse um, them having to do the hard work of looking at how whiteness shapes us. So 
in in let's let's talk, talk about a little, a little bit the new book then in that case um nice racism the title um what did you feel you needed to add to the current conversation what about the current conversation on race did you feel was missing and why were you the person to fill that gap um so white fragility really just set set out to establish systemic racism exists it's real and every one of us has been shaped by it and and it's on each of us to to spend i would say the rest of our lives deeply exploring how we've been shaped by it as i often say change the question to if you've been shaped by the forces of racism to how have you been shaped um and so that that sought to establish that. And with what nice racism, um, I could just say, okay, let's just start from that premise. And now let's go more deeply into that second part of the question, which is how has it shaped us? White progressives are my specialty. <laughs> I am a huge white progressive. Um, that's mostly who I'm in front of uh, most of the time. And I made a controversial claim in uh, white fragility, which is that white progressives actually cause the most daily harm. And I get asked about that a lot. So nice racism uh, seeks to answer that question. Uh, it actually gave me the opportunity to really um, put out all that I have learned all of these years. I do, um, I do have some expertise in the particular manifestations of white progressives. And I let my, my own voice come through more. Um, and uh, like, let's get into it. <laughs> so how might a white progressive watching or listening to this conversation recognize themselves? How would I know if I'm a white progressive? Well, you can just start with, um, uh, if, if you are a white progressive, then, and you um, um, grant that systemic racism exists. So maybe that's just a super simple way to say well, who is a white progressive, someone who wouldn't deny that systemic racism exists. But unfortunately, all too often it stop, stops there. Well, it exists, but I haven't been affected by it. That's like saying, well, sure, at birth, I was assigned the gender female, but it has had no impact on my life whatsoever. I've received no message other than uh, all girls are, uh, you know, completely equal to boys. And, um, you know, so uh, I can carry on. Right. So you have to take it to yourself. And again, that question, how does it manifest? It does manifest in our lives. And I hope that the chapter on white patterns, common white patterns, pretty much would help you see how it applies to you. Mm -hmm. I tried to be uh, fairly thorough in all of the most common patterns that I see from white progressives. I mean, I could have made that chapter twice as long because <laughs> we have a lot of patterns. Uh, but let me ask you, Miriam, when you read that, I mean, you're clearly a white progressive. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, did anything resonate for you? Did you have any uncomfortable moments? I mean, def definitely. I don't know if I see them as uncomfortable. I see them as always like opportunities to rethink how I approach a situation. I also, you know, for me, white progressive seems to be a term that I think interchangeably is with the term white liberal. Mm -hmm. And I don't personally identify as a liberal. Mm -hmm. I personally find the liberal attitude, which I think is imbibed with a sense of moral superiority, actually quite grating. Um, and I say this as a member, you know, obviously of a a, a racial majority group, but religiously as part of a religious minority group as a Muslim, I'm very aware of how 
my community is spoken about in liberal circles. Um, and so, yeah, I feel like a lot of those conversations grow up concerns that I have um, both about the exterior world, but certainly about my uh, presence within those spaces and perhaps my complicity in many cases in those spaces. And that's something I think a lot of um, white people invested in this conversation struggle with. It's certainly a conversation I've had many times with people. It's like, you know, if you're sat around a table and somebody says something which is deeply problematic, you know, are you the person that interrupts the dinner and just goes, yeah, guys, and then changes the entire mood and then begins a debate that will no, no doubt last the entire evening. I'm usually that person, but, you know, I don't tend to get invited back. It's the way that it works. Um, so you, you kind of have to figure out what, you know, I mean, a lot, and it's a tough call to ask people to do that in all circumstances. Are you going to do that on Christmas day when like granddad or uncle says, you know, that thing that everyone knows is really messed up. Um, so yes, I, I, I recognize a lot of the patterns and I thought that the, you've got a final section, which is about, you know, kind of questions you can ask yourself or ask a group that you're invested in um, an interesting exercise. I would like, I would love to play that uh, little exercise with um, a lot of people around me. Mm -hmm. um, but I wanted to ask you about kind of the ways in which white liberals, because a lot of people might say, well, look, you know, white nationalists, the sort of the growing group within society, they're the really dangerous guys. They're the ones, you know, storming the capital. They're the ones, you know, threatening to blow stuff up in some cases, actually doing it. Um, why focus on the ones who are trying, you know, the people who are actually trying to do better? Um, and, and I guess, well, I'll ask that after. Okay. Well, I took lots of notes when you were just talking. So I, before we go there, I Please, just have to yes. do a few things. So one, I want to pull out um, what I, of course, would hope um, the effect of the book would be. It, you said you, um, you appreciated it you found it useful, right? You were curious and interested. I mean, that's the ideal, right? It's like when you change your framework and you recognize that it's inevitable that you've been shaped by these forces, that you have assumptions you're not even aware you have and that they come out in various ways, then you actually are eager in some ways. It's not comfortable, but you're eager to get the feedback so that you don't continue to do those things. And, and that is ideal. Um, it, that's one thing. Another thing is that so many white people live segregated lives. Mm -hmm. And so how would we even know how well we're doing, right? Wh yeah. What is it that you're using to measure um, and, and who are you accountable to? And I can't remember what you said in this moment, but there was something where I took a note. Um, and at the dinner, let me just say two things. One, Absolutely. Do I choose at times just, you know, for all those reasons, put them in the hat and just say, no, I'm not going to go there right now. Yes, I do. And I also have to own that I made that choice. Right? I made that choice to be complicit with the racism and to let it kind of affect everybody and reinforce problematic dynamics. Um, and rather than try to excuse it in a way that I don't take responsibility for that. The other question that I would ask is, what if it's you at the dinner, right? So, so that's something that we often do, those of us who are, who are and by the way, in the title I say progressive white people, <laughs> that little switch from that to white progressives, just to, to, it's not so much an identity as 
the kind of white people who, again, would not deny that, that racism exists. Yeah. Um, as you acknowledged at the beginning, language is always a challenge. Yeah. But we do tend to always think that what it's about is whether I'm going to speak up in front of somebody else's racism. Hmm. But how do we respond when somebody speaks up in front of ours? Right. What if I did um, make a comment that comes from an unexamined assumption? You know, am I receptive to that feedback? That is something that I don't see from a lot of white progressives, to be to be honest. I don't see what you named as a curiosity and and care and interest, appreciation for the feedback. And to the degree that it's so important to our identities that we not be seen as racist we can even be more defensive than a white nationalist. Sure. So that sure. gets to your, your question, <laughs> which yeah, is, yeah. yeah, I am so clear that we are in a terrifying moment mm-hmm. worldwide, that white nationalism is growing and circulating worldwide. And, and it's a threat that's incomparable. And I also am clear that on a daily basis, Black people and other people of color often go home exhausted from all of the stuff that we do. And it's debilitating and it makes it more difficult for them to to do the fight, for all of us to engage in the fight against white nationalism. So it may not compare to that harm, but it's a form of harm. And it's a form of harm that I have direct control over and responsibility for. And, and how do you see the ideological relationship between white progressives and white nationalists, given that we would say that they're both racist? Um, well, I don't know that there's any act any of us have ever seen on a video of a white person engaging in racism where, where the white person doesn't say, I'm not racist. <laughs> Uh, white nationalists say that they're not racist. I mean, oh. and they know they they know that politically and you know, culturally, it's best that they don't say that they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, so it, it just, everything gets very murky and obscure and hard to get your hands on. And this is why Ibram Kindi says the opposite of racist isn't not racist. Mm-hmm. That's functionally meaningless. If I say I'm not racist, it's functionally meaningless. Um, so the opposite of racist is anti-racist, which, which is an actively. So... On that, on that note, if I am not actively doing anything to challenge what's happening with white nationalism, I mean, I'm allowing it to flourish. And now, does that mean I have to stand in front of a white nationalist and take them on? No, but I can get involved in local struggles. They're very, they're very clever on the right. And Steve Bannon um, just guided the troops, if you will, get involved in local school boards, get a, get a lot involved in um, city councils and election. You know, that's where you can make the change. And look, look at how quickly they were able to pass through, um, you know, voting restrictions, uh, banning critical race theory, because they did get in local Hmm. Well, that's something I can do that. I don't have to be a Senator, which feels overwhelming, but I could get involved in my school board. Yeah. And, and so, so on. So taking a stance at a local at a local level, yes. which I think is often the only really accessible level to most of us, and yet often so yeah. widely overlooked. Um, within the priorities of the anti-racism movement, and we discussed at the start of this conversation what um, an eventful year it has been when it comes to not just you know m- massive global movements of anti-racism. 
how within those global movements, and I'm thinking obviously led by the BLM movement, how within that do you justify a focus on the interpersonal over the structures of racism which impact inequality? So where does, for example, your book Nice Racism fit into the wider calls to dismantle unjust systems of power? Yeah, I mean, people are not institutions, but institutions are made up of people. And if you don't change the consciousness of those who are sitting at the tables, making decisions that affect the lives that, of, of those who aren't sitting at the tables, so they are setting policies and practices of structures, people set those policies and practices. And um, if you haven't changed their consciousness, how are they going to change, challenge, or create policies and practices um, that change the structures, right? Um, I, I use the example of um, many people say, um, it's not about relationships, it's about getting involved, all right? So I'd like to ask anyone who identifies as a woman, um, when men get involved, those who identify as men get involved in, in women's movements, you know, how does that go? Uh, how often do they take over? <laughs> um, and, um, see themselves as being, you know, it's, let me just say, it can be very frustrating if they are not also checking their patterns and socializations to dominate those spaces. Hmm. Uh, so I, I don't think they're separable. I just don't see you're going to get structural change if you don't change people's consciousness who create yeah. structures. It, start, it starts within, I guess, with, the, with the, each person working on, on their own uh, prejudice and, and patterns. Now, in, in the book, um, you say uh, Black people know that most of us can't answer the question of our own whiteness and that we bring that inability to the table. Are you able to answer that question? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> um, I think that um, white fragility, many of the patterns I lay out, the dynamics I lay out, uh, the unspoken rules of engagement, all of that is part of whiteness and how we've all been socialized into whiteness. And I do believe that as I try to make it visible for other white people, I'm pointing my fingers inward uh, as well as outward and making space to say, look, I can own this, I can admit to this. Um, and so many white people have said, oh my God, there was this incredible relief if you can say, you know, you thought that or done that, then I can, I can also look at it and say, I've thought it or done it. So if, if, um, and I mean, throughout the podcast, people have defined whiteness differently. And have, clearly there are different views on how to define it, but a lot of focus has been on whiteness as a structure. But if, if in your book, obviously the focus is on the interpersonal. So would you say in this case that you're discussing whiteness um, as an outlook, is uh, is whiteness a, a a world view? Is it how 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 do you how would you define it in nice racism? I would define it. I'll call upon two scholars who I think so beautifully define it. And one is Joe Fagan, who talks about the white racial frame, the framework through which we make meaning of the world, through which we view the world, um, how we perceive the world. There is no human objectivity. <laughs> So nobody's just looking through an objective set of eyes. Um, we're making meaning, right? That's culture. And our culture, the framework of our culture is white supremacy. Um, the idea that white people are the stand-in for human, 
and actually ideal human. Resma Minicum says that if white is the standard for human and the way that we measure humanity, then every hue, H-U-E, hue away from that is a, is a step away from human. He talks about racism as actually a, a species question. I mean, if you look across history and culture, it, the, the uh, question of our black human <laughs> is pretty deeply infused in, in the way that we represent. Um, and so it's a way of making meaning of the world that centers white people and white perspectives as universal, right? As not particular, as not limited, as not subjective, but as objective. Everybody else's viewpoints are subjective, right? Mm -hmm. um, Ruth Frankenberg talks about it as a kind of um, set of, she uses the term protective pillows. Um, that prevent us from having to acknowledge those things that keep us comfortable as we move through the world. Um, so a set of privileges as and entitlements that we take for granted, a kind of equilibrium within a racist society. So one of the ways that, that I think about it is uh, racism is 365, 24-7. It is the status quo. It's not an aberration. And I move through societies in which racism is the status quo in racial comfort as a white person every day. I live, love, work, play, create uh, in racial comfort in racist societies. Just, I want to pause there. I'm comfortable in a racist society. Uh, that's very deep. Uh, I didn't get comfortable in a moment. I got comfortable because I was born into the water in which this was already in place. Um, that's whiteness. <laughs> and uh, we're not going to get where we need to go by maintaining comfort. We're going to have to get uncomfortable. And, you know, I want to I bring up the question of guilt because it's such a, it's such a, hmm, issue. M much of the critique about me is about guilt. You just want white people to be, feel guilty. And I just find that worth reflecting on. Mm -hmm. Why are we so distressed about the fact that white people might feel guilty? <laughs> you know, some fleeting, impotent sense of guilt on occasion. And that and we're just wringing our hands do not cause any white person to feel guilt. You just want us to feel guilty. Um, do you feel like that, sometimes they lose themselves in the guilt though? Because I think that what that's something I've noticed is some people stop at the guilt, you know, in the exactly. day. You know, well, the one you have those who want to protect white people from ever feeling guilt, right? Yeah. And you know, so that's worth looking at. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also you have many white people using that as an excuse to disengage. Yeah, you just, um, you just get stuck. It's like frozen in guilt world, and then it's mm -hmm. like but do no. you really? I mean, they're, they're, one, I don't have a lot of patience for it at this point in my career. Like get over it, move past it, use it to motivate you. If it works to motivate you, great. But if you are using it to excuse an action, then I'm going to call BS. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I, I'm going to, again, offer that question. How is your guilt functioning? And if it's functioning to excuse you from the conversation, excuse you from any further work, then your guilt is functioning to protect racism. And so you either own that 
or figure out how to move through it. And I think a key way to do that is, is in understanding that you didn't choose to be socialized into the system. So do so, you think white people yeah. should feel guilty? I think it's a natural response. I don't know that you can fully control it. I think it's a natural response to coming to consciousness about the reality of this system and our place in it and that we've benefited from it. And if we're going to be really honest, we have investments in it. Mm -hmm. And I would say that guilt can often function as a way to protect those investments. Mm -hmm. And if it's functioning that way, then we need to move through it again. You know, if we're being really honest, how often do white people really feel guilty about racism? And is it so terrible? How about we, we uh, increase our capacity to withstand it? so that we can keep functioning in the face of it. Mm -hmm. And what is the best an antidote to guilt? Reparative action. Right. <laughs> Get going. Yeah. And I think maybe that's also where, um, you know, and, and this is a product, I think, of, of the way that these conversations have been hijacked in some spaces on social media where, um, you know, people are going to make mistakes. I mean, you said at the beginning of this conversation that, you know, you can never get it right. And so for white people who are racialized as white entering this conversation, there is always that awareness that you're going to say something wrong. You're going to say something that's going to offend someone and you will because no one actually agrees on anything. Well, anyway, like, I mean, you can find some broad patterns, but, you know, there's always going to be someone who doesn't agree. And I think that's that's probably part of where I feel some people get stuck on the guilt because it, it sort of allows you to stay, still stay slightly outside of the, um, of the arena, which is not a comfortable space, I think. Well, you know, imagine I use this example in the book um, saying we've got to talk about um, rape culture. Mm -hmm. got to talk about the reality of sexual assault. I'm aware that there have been a whole string of uh, sexual assaults and murders in London right? From women who literally, before they leave, say, I'm leaving and do everything to be safe and are still assaulted and murdered. Yeah. And we say, we've got to talk about it. We've got to talk about toxic masculinity that leads to it. And the response is, well, that'll make men feel bad. I don't think we don't want to make men feel guilty. I mean, how would you, as a woman, how yeah. would you respond to that? Would you just be just so frustrated? Um, well, black people get frustrated with us, you know, lamenting, you know, our guilt. And of course, you're always going to have what I would call anti-feminist women who will, who will take that up and seek to protect men. But I don't think that they're the norm. So actually on that subject, I was going to ask you, so one, uh, to make a parallel, one of my close friends is someone I would not describe as sexist. He's actually one of the more feminist or progressive men that I know, but occasionally he will say something that I find problematic. Um, and to be fair to him, when I raise it, he'll usually acknowledge my perspective. I wouldn't call him misogynistic. I'd more so call him a product of a patriarchal world. So does saying the wrong thing make you a racist, which I think is where a lot of people get freaked out? Yeah, but even the, the phrase a racist as if it's a static position and that there are some people who are a racist and some people who are not a racist. And that is the framework that I think has functioned to protect racism. 
-hmm. When you understand it as a system you've been socialized into, again, that changes the question to in this moment, am I behaving in racist ways or anti-racist ways? It becomes more of a continuum that you move along across your life. There are moments when I choose comfort uh, and I'm on this more this end of that continuum and other moments when I'm not. Um, I mean, I actually think that example, I, I wouldn't frame it the way you did. And, and I think for me, you kind of proved my point by saying he does occasionally say sexist things because yeah. he's a product of the culture. So I, I wouldn't say he's could be outside of it. I could say he's more or less um, challenged it. And even you identifying as, as a feminist, okay, that's great. If he identified as a feminist, which I encourage me, I would say, I will be the judge of that. <laughs> uh, I've known far too many men who say they're feminists and boy, do I not think that they are feminists. Yes, um, I see you, but I am very happy when I hear men seeking to be feminists. That makes me very happy that you're trying to be, even though I know, yes. that, you know, it's. But a see, I wouldn't off. say to I wouldn't say that this person you're talking about is not sexist. Got it. I would say that they're a good ally. That they're definitely working on their sexism. That they they. Um, but they're we're all products of patriarchy. <laughs> so, yes, and indeed of, of of a racist or a white supremacist framework, right? To to kind of yes. the analogy. Um, so what uh, you obviously have been very uh, invested in diversity training. One of the words that comes up actually before we get to that, the word ally has become quite controversial of late. I'm sure this hasn't um, uh, missed your radar. Um, one of the critiques of course of the world word ally is that it's quite patronizing, um, that it doesn't involve a sort of reciprocal or equal relationship. Um, and I suppose ultimately that it involves um, people racialized as white kind of coming into a conversation, but not really having any position within that, just supporting other people's positions. Um, what do you make, firstly, of the term ally yourself and of the critiques that you've seen of the term? It's not one that's particularly resonates with me. I don't have much energy about it. Um, for me, whatever term works for you or works for the people that you're uh, professing to be allied with, then I would just adapt to that term. Um, I don't consider myself an ally. I probably wouldn't call myself a co-conspirator, whatever the other words are, yeah. um, because I do believe that that is for, in, is, if we're talking about race, people of color to decide if in any, at any given time I'm behaving in ways that they consider whatever term they're using. <laughs> um, so regardless of what it is, it's not a self-anointed label. Right. Um, and, and that just totally connects to what we had with with the conversation with your friend. Right. It, it's for me to determine if he's behaving in ways that I think are supportive and not for him to claim that he's arrived and that he is indeed <laughs> behaving in those ways. As a feminist. Yes. So in a recent interview, you say, if you're really engaging with my work, it will lead you right to all the people of color who've been saying these things for a very long time. How do you personally navigate the debt you owe to black and brown thinkers? And I think not just you, but anyone involved in anti-racism work who haven't necessarily capitalized monetarily on their anti-racism work with the profits that you make as a high profile 
you know, New York Times bestselling author signposting to those ideas? How do you navigate that space, particularly at a time where a lot of people would say, you know, white people shouldn't be capitalizing off anti-racism work? It's, you know, the very least you could, you guys could be doing. Yeah. Um, well, a couple, a couple of ways. First of all, I make my living as an anti-racist educator. Um, I do think if everyone made their living by infusing anti-racism in their work, we would change the world. Um, and I, I want to, oh, I donate a percentage of my income. So um, I do turn it back over and you can go to my website and look at my accountability page and you can see who I donate to and what percentage I donate to. Uh, I, I hope you have noticed that I've named several black writers in their works in this conversation. I try always to use my platform. Um, and now I'm gonna say something a little more sensitive, which is of course I've been influenced by the thinking of black people, <laughs> by my relationships with black people, that I could not articulate what I can at this point. Uh, if I was not in relationship across race, if I hadn't been mentored uh, and engaged for years, I, white people just simply cannot understand racism if we aren't listening to black people. And I don't believe we can understand it if we only listen to black people. And we are not also using our insider status to expose the aspects of it that they can't expose because they are not insiders to it. So there's a piece of the puzzle that we have and that we have to look at and use. And I have been as well deeply shaped by the thinking of white scholars, David Rodiger, The Wages of Whiteness, Ruth Frankenberg, White Women Race Matters, uh, Peggy McIntosh, Tim Wise, they have also profoundly shaped my ability to articulate what I can. Um, it, it doesn't feel fair to say, you know, I'm a blank slate and only uh, listened and absorbed and then turned around. Um, so in addition to black scholars and other scholars of color, I've been shaped by white scholars. And then there's a third piece, which is I've had to apply all of that <laughs> for the last 25 years and make lots of mistakes and learn and grow. And when you put it all together, here's the piece that I have to offer. And I want to take this opportunity to say, that it's not a zero sum game, that if you read one book, that I'm in the way blocking <laughs> uh, access. Um, in the last five years, 32 books on race have been on the New York Times bestselling list and 29 of them have been written by black people and three by white people, one of whom is me. And at least two of those have been on much longer than my book. So it's just simply not true that people are not also and haven't been for quite a while listening to Black voices. But we've been missing from the table. We've been offloading all of this and proceeding as if we're innocent um, and, and we're just going to you know learn whatever they tell us. So that, that, those are some of the ways that I see that uh, um, now, just before we go to the quick fire round, I wanted to ask you, um, for people who are thinking about purchasing your book, what can people get from your book, which they couldn't get from a book written by a person of color on this topic? What does a white perspective on racism truly offer? Um, well, I'm going to repeat the insider perspective, the ability to articulate internal dynamics um, and the ways things function, ways these function within us, um, uh, that kind of space 
to feel like the person is in it with you. And so, you know, it's hard to look at this, right? I mean, let's, let's be clear, you know, you and I are pretty comfortable at this point, but we've taken some, you know, we've had some um, difficult moments, I am sure. sure. And so it's, it's like, I'm by your side, I'm with you. I, I understand and relate to your experience. And I'm going to give you, I hope, compassionate accountability um, that will also be part of what helps you um, take in what Black people are saying and how Black folks are calling us in. Um, it, it's, it's one aspect of guidance that I think um, can really help, um, what's the word, um, assimilate <laughs> uh, the feedback. And that's because base, and I mean, you say this in white fragility as well, that, you know, a lot of white people find it easier to hear some of the tougher things that need to be said when they're expressed by a white person. And I, and I suppose a lot of people would also, you know, to give the other perspective, say, well, it's really problematic that we, you know, you have to filter these messages through a white lens for people to absorb them. And I suppose the question is, is it tactical or it is, is it, it's tactical, presumably, um, to, to, to use a white voice rather than kind of objectively advantageous. Yeah, implicit bias is real. And all of us have absorbed it. All of us have anti-blackness within us, I believe. Um, and so it's one harder to deny when I say it than when black people say it. Um, I mean, it, isn't that unfortunate? I understand the resentment some black people might feel like we've been saying this for, you know, centuries and now she says it and that's unfortunate, but that is the reality of anti-blackness um, and implicit bias. And so let me open folks up for you <laughs> um, so that they can take in, um, you know, if we could just take in without all of the anti-blackness that filters consciously or not what we're being told the minimization, the defensiveness. Um, if we could have take that in, we would be in a different place, but it is what it is and nothing is outside of it. I'm very clear that as my work seeks to decenter and expose whiteness, it centers whiteness. I, I don't know any way out of that. <laughs> um, and again, we're inside this thing. And I think we kind of maybe need a little more grace about that reality. Like we need to be accountable, but we also need to recognize you just, inside the master's house. <laughs> All of us are inside the master's house and there's just no clean space at this point. Mm. Well, thank you very much uh, for all of that. We've got a quick fire round, which you might recall, where I ask very brief questions and are looking for very brief answers. So obviously back in 2019, I asked you for your brief accessible definition of whiteness. Has it changed since then? And if so, what would be your definition of whiteness now? It hasn't changed, but I would emphasize that it is highly adaptive and it adapts to challenges and keeps on keeping on. And look uh, how it has adapted to the Black Lives Matter movement. In the US, we have voting restrictions that we haven't seen since the Jim Crow era. We've got to keep paying attention. Are there hues within whiteness, by which I mean, do different types of white people get treated differently within whiteness? 
Yes. And that's why it's on each and every person to answer the question of how we've been shaped and not if that's where you can be an individual. Like I'm, I'm not going to grant that, you know, you could be outside of it, but you know, your specific life experiences and intersectionality, I don't know. That's on you to uh, apply. When we have also experienced an axis of oppression, uh, we are Jewish, we are queer, we are female, that type of thing. We are, have disabilities. We do have a way in that can be incredibly useful, but we just can't use it as a way out. <laughs> we still have racial privilege. What is the root of racism? Patriarchy. It, it comes out of patriarchy. Patri we, we could talk about capitalism. We could talk about democracy. Those are fairly new systems, but patriarchy has been as far back as we, you know, we have written records for. And from that initial hierarchy, right, of who is uh, worth worthy and who is not, we, we developed white supremacy. Can you cure racism? I don't believe I will see it in my lifetime. And I'm not very optimistic, but that should never be the excuse for fighting it. Can we have equality under capitalism? I, I think we could have democratic socialism or, um, you know, where the basic needs of all humans are met and then make all the profit you want on anything else. <laughs> so I think there is, I think it is possible. Yes. Um, what are some of the pitfalls of using whiteness as a conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism? Um, pitfalls will always be that it, it as it seeks to decenter its centers, um, that there is a, a comfort and preference to, there's a kind of narcissism in looking at whiteness. It's interesting. It's fascinating, right? It's like, it's self-discovery. Um, and so you got that, that can be a pitfall. <laughs> um, we, we have to really keep ourselves accountable and in check. And that's why we need to be in cross-racial relationships. Great. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Robin D'Angelo. If people want to connect with you, obviously you're not on Twitter, but are there other spaces <laughs> that connect with you and your work? Sure, sure. I have a website and there's a contact form and it goes into a general box and it does get screened um, <laughs> for meanness. Uh, and then, and then uh, I will see it if it's respectful, I will see it and I'll do my best to engage. Fantastic. Um, is there a bookseller of choice? Um, I ask all my guests to oh, offer sweet. maybe an alter alternative to um, the main big ones. Um, yes. Your book <laughs> choice. That shall not be named. Um, yes, on my website, there's actually a link, uh, links to several black owned bookstores. The publisher themselves, if you buy direct from the publisher, they are a nonprofit social justice publisher. They're, they're not black owned, but they carry many black writers. That's another option. Thank you very much. Um, Dr. Robin D'Angelo, thank you again for your time. Thank you to all of our listeners and our viewers this time for tuning in to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Please do subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness. Thank you, Miriam. Thank you.